We do a lot of different things. We build relationships both with members of Congress and their staff on the Hill so that we know who are going to be champions for our issues. Building those relationships is a big piece. Monitoring what's going on in Congress to make sure that if there's an opportunity, we take advantage of it. And if there's a threat that we address it, problem solving how to address those threats, but also ways we can advance the profession. And then building relationships just with people like you, with our occupational therapy community, so that we know. Hi, I'm Clarice Grody, and welcome to the Amplify OT podcast. I'm an occupational therapist by trade and a policy wonk by choice. This podcast is here to help you survive and thrive in the U.S. healthcare system through a better understanding of policy, advocacy, and value-based care. So let's dive in. Welcome back, everyone, to the Amplify OT podcast. I'm Clarice Grody, and today I am here with Heather Parsons, who is the Vice President of Federal Affairs at the American Occupational Therapy Association, was also my supervisor while I was a federal affairs student back in, what, 2017, and is still one of my close mentors. And so we're going to talk today about advocacy and what's going on in Congress. So Heather, would you mind introducing yourself and sharing a little bit about you? Hi, Clarice. Thank you for having me on your podcast today. And yes, it was a joy and pleasure to uh, be your fieldwork supervisor and still enjoy mentoring now. It is much more a completely mutual, beneficial, we help each other out, bounce each other (laughs) ideas off of each other. So I appreciate that. So a little bit about myself. I was trained as an occupational therapy practitioner and graduated in 2000 was always really interested in policy and how it impacted practice. You know, I had a program that talked about how different laws were the reason why we got into the schools, how it changed mental health settings, you know, that if we weren't added to the Medicare benefit, we would not be the profession that we are today. And so I was always intrigued by that. So when I graduated from school in North Carolina, I moved up to Washington, D.C., worked in the Arlington schools for four years, but kind of kept my eye out on Capitol Hill or opportunities to work more in the DC policy scene. I was lucky, I guess. Um, (laughs) One of my roommates knew that my hometown congressman was looking for someone to do education and healthcare policy. And so I applied for the job. The chief of staff told me if there was someone with Hill experience, policy knowledge, and from North Carolina that they would get the job. If people only met two of those criteria, I was in the running. He was honest with me, which is always nice. And nobody came with and checked all three boxes. So I ended up getting that job. So I worked for eight years on Capitol Hill. When the congressman retired, I was the deputy chief of staff. But really, my big job was helping analyze legislation, look at legislation, and advise him on votes, especially related to education and health care. I was there during the Affordable Care Act, which was definitely an interesting time. Also did some other work on the Science Committee, which is not at all related to occupational (laughs) therapy, but I really enjoyed that work too. So that was really a deep dive into congressional process, policy, how to get things done. When he left, I got a job with AOTA. They happened to have a position open at the time. 
And so moved over there and I just hit my 10 year anniversary on Tuesday. I think it was. Congratulations. Happy anniversary. (laughs) Well, and I think that's such a good example of how as occupational therapy practitioners, we can take our skills and apply them in my opinion, in any setting. But so I know you've told me before kind of how you took those skills. I think that might be hard for some people to imagine, you know, how do you go from being essentially a school-based therapist to eventually becoming a deputy chief of staff working in politics? Like people would see those as two completely different career paths. So how did you make that bridge? I wish I still had my resume that (laughs) I um, sent and I did for years, but I can't find it anymore because I went with the strengths-based resume and really broke it down into sort of the the OT process, which is doing an evaluation and identifying the problem, looking at strengths, looking at weaknesses, and developing a plan to address the challenges. And then looking to see, you know, how's it doing? Do we need to modify this? And just talked about that problem solving process and how it could be applied to the job. And I still apply that process to the challenges that we face It's just a whole different toolkit of how you solve it, right? It's legislative. It's the legislative process. It's the people, the members of Congress and their interests. Like those are all the things that are how you solve the problem now. But that that was how I approached it. And I guess I convinced them that that was was valuable. What's interesting is someone who I worked with told me a few years ago that he was always like, I just thought your process and your way of thinking was you. My sister just graduated from OT school. And I keep thinking she reminds me so much of Heather. And then I realized that it's the OT, (laughs) you know, that it's the OT in her. So yeah, that's how, you know, I describe OT. Like, yes, we have a lot of really medical training, obviously, or medical practitioners. But when you think about the core skills of what it is to be an occupational therapist or an OTA, It's all about that task analysis, all about that problem solving and the plan development and the goal development. We happen to apply it in a medical setting, but you can definitely take those skills and apply them anywhere like you have. I mean, and that's kind of what you do even now, even in your daily position, right? You're not treating patients. You're not evaluating you know, their strengths and their deficits and establishing their plan of care, but you're applying those skills to lobbying, to advocacy, to that work. So I learned a lot about, obviously, what AOTA does and what the federal affairs team is as a student. And so for anyone who doesn't know, I did my level two, a third level two field work. So I have a master's student, um, third level two field work at AOTA. So I actually lived in DC for three months and went to AOTA headquarters and did meetings and things like that. And just kind of learned a lot about the day-to-day practices and how important it is. Because the reason I wanted to do that, right, is I was a student during the 2016 presidential election and repeal of the Affordable Care Act of the ACA was a big topic of conversation, which I knew would not only have devastating effects for me personally, because I was under the age of 26 and still on my parents' health insurance plan, which was a provision of the ACA, also have pre-existing conditions. And so personally, I wanted the ACA to stay in place, but also professionally because of how it expanded access to occupational therapy services. And I knew that I did not want to graduate after spending a ton of money to become an occupational therapist and be unable to find a job, which is how I wound my way up at AOTA and really learned the importance of advocacy and 
I think we have this tendency to feel like policy happens to us, that there's not much that we can do. There's not much that we can control. You know, Congress is Congress. It lives in D.C. And I guess I'll just hear about it when it changes. But being at AOTA showed me that that is absolutely not the case, that we do have some control. Obviously, you know, we can't control everything, but we do have some control. So I'd love to hear a little bit about how that happens in your daily work, you know, with AOTA, what your team does, and what exactly is the federal affairs team (laughs) doing every day to support practitioners like us? I always say there's no typical day. And I would say that everyone on the federal (laughs) affairs team's day is different. So there are five of us on the federal affairs team. Darlene is our AOT PAC manager. So she is the person responsible for working with the PAC board and raising money for our political action committee. And we could talk a whole nother podcast about the PAC. And sometimes we should, (laughs) you should know that no dues, AOTA dues go to supporting a candidate. However, AOTA PAC is the only PAC that is for occupational therapy practitioners to join together to support candidates who support occupational therapy. So the PAC is a part of what we do. And I'll leave, I'll leave that at that. Um, <laughs> we also have Jill who does our grassroots advocacy. So she puts together our Hill days. She's the one who you're going to get messages from if there's a current issue that really needs to be flagged that you need to write into Congress on right now or call. Sometimes we have call engagements where we're getting you to call in. She also helps coordinate those efforts with other organizations. We work very closely with multiple other organizations. APTA, we have a really great relationship with ASHA are the main ones, but we work with doctors groups, mental health groups, lots of other organizations. Andy on our team is a lobbyist and he handles Medicare issues. So he is going to be doing, spends more time building relationships on the Hill, talking about our issues from telehealth to the fee schedule, to the occupational therapy assistant, really anything in Medicare. And we'll talk some more about those issues. And then Abe handles education and disability policy. And I joke that he Like there's not as much legislation that happens around education. So Abe's job is to constantly keep occupational therapy on people's mind, especially for how we can address solutions in the school system, what role we could be playing, making sure that people understand how important we are in the schools and with special education, mostly to help advance us in the small ways we can. But also if there's ever a big bill, like if IDA came back up, um, you don't want to start getting to know Congress. Like explaining OT in the schools when the bill is being drafted, people need to already be like, yep, like you've sold me. I know it. We got you. Like you're covered. And then I oversee that team and also work on Medicare, work on some of the niche bills that come through that, you know, some point we could talk about those. Sometimes you're surprised when things get introduced and you have to deal with them. Mental health has been something I've worked on a lot over the years that's still a passion. So that's our team. (laughs) But like what we do, we do a lot of different things. We build relationships both with members of Congress and their staff on the Hill so that we know who are going to be champions for our issues. One thing that I miss with COVID, you used to be able to go to hearings and watch them in person 
watch members of Congress ask questions. So we would go, I would go if it was something related to us. And what I liked about that is you could watch people, you could see who was a little more nuanced, who really cared about patient-centered care. And you could figure out that those are the offices to target for our issues, that they were going to get our issues. And so I've missed having that. We've still built relationships, but building those relationships is a big piece. Monitoring what's going on in Congress to make sure that if there's an opportunity, we take advantage of it. And if there's a threat that we address it, problem solving how to address those threats, but also ways we can advance the profession and then building relationships just with people like you, with our occupational therapy community, so that we know, right? Like, I'm the only one with a background in occupational therapy, but I think everyone stays because they love the profession. They love advocating for this profession, but that comes from relationships we have. Yeah, and with, I think that's you all. such an important part of that relationship, Billy. I mean, just like as a clinician, right? You get to know your physicians, you get to know your nurses, your case managers, because if I need something or I really think that a different discharge plan, you know, versus what someone else might think, like, I want to have a relationship with those people. I want to make sure that they know what OT is and isn't so that if I need something or if a patient really needs something, I'm not starting from ground zero. And I think that's kind of the same thing you know, in Congress, you're trying to make those relationships so that if there's an issue, you're not calling up and introducing yourself and saying, hey, this is what occupational therapy is, but you're starting from the bottom. You want them to already know. And I think that's kind of also that other part of advocacy, that kind of hidden part is not only the wins and when a bill passes, it's all the lead up to that win (laughs) as well as all the fires that have also been put out I don't always know some of the fires that happen in Congress, which is good because if we knew about the fires that happened, that means that they got a little bit further than we would hope. But, you know, I saw it too in the state associations, right? Or in the state where there'd be bills that were introduced that could threaten our license, that threaten our scope of practice. Mm -hmm. And fortunately, they didn't go anywhere, but it's because we advocated and educated people on why those bills shouldn't go anywhere. And I think that's something that we don't always see that, yes, policy does happen to us, But like you're saying, you know, we build those relationships and we can kind of, we have some control over how that happens and can educate people on what we do. And so I think that's where we kind of want to talk about, because obviously AOTA has been having a advocacy campaign this November. So Mm -hmm. we had your grassroots advocacy learning intensive or GALI in September, (laughs) which is normally our Hill Day, which we haven't been able to have in person, but hopefully maybe next year we might have it in person. It will depend on how Congress (laughs) opens up. We can't have people fly in just to take virtual meetings, right? Like we wouldn't ask people to come down and do that. And, you know, we have huge Hill Days. They in person would be four and 500 people, which is much harder to negotiate or to organize, not negotiate if it's going to be like part in person, part virtual. So I think we, we have to see how that's going, but we would definitely like (laughs) to have an in-person component. Yeah. So in Hill Day, if you've never gone before is really great, a great way to network, a great way to meet other advocates in your area, and also just kind of see what happens and recognize that you are the expert on occupational therapy. You know, I was really nervous my first meeting, but the more I do it, the easier it is because you realize that more likely than not, you know, more than the person sitting across from you. And that's Sometimes all that matters when you're talking about, yes. you know, OT and advocacy. I've, I've always said, if you have a bad Hill meeting, it's on them. It's not on you. 
right? Yeah. Like that they know, they know that your expertise is in advocacy, not in policy. And if they make you feel bad or if they belittle you, which happens rarely, this till day, there was one call where I felt like somebody did that. And another staffer from that office basically apologized when that person got off the phone. So I was like, see, it's on him. It's not on you. It's not on us. Yeah. yeah, I mean, it is good because Hill staffers, like I get paid to do this. And so they trust me, but they really trust their constituents. Like you're in the district, you are working with their constituents. You are providing those services there. So they they do like to hear, like you are the expert. So they want to hear what we have to say and how it's going to impact our community. And so we'll talk a little bit later about how we can contact our legislators and what AOTA has in place to make that easy. But first I figured we'd go through some of what's going on in Congress right now. So like why this November are we doing a big advocacy push versus let's say this past June or even, you know, November of 2021. So what is special about November of 2022 that we have to advocate right now? Congress runs on a two-year cycle. Since I started on the Hill, like my life now is in two-year cycles. My folders (laughs) on my desk, my folders are all like listed by the Congress it is, right? So because when the Congress is finished, it's finished and it starts all over again. Every bill, you start back at zero. Every bill has to be reintroduced. And I'm a procrastinator, but Congress is the worst procrastinator ever. (laughs) Like, you find yourself at the end of the year with like all the extra issues that have to be taken care of. They start throwing them together in one big piece of legislation. I will say that has gotten worse since I started on the Hill in 2004. It's gotten way worse. And that is not any party to blame. It's just sort of moved that way that that's how things happen. And Medicare policy, particularly, it's like nobody wants to deal with it. So we're always here at the end of the year. And even then, it's like, you all know this is coming, right? Like, couldn't you start negotiations? <laughs> but we were talking to people, they're like, well, you got, but no, because they got to see what happens with the election, right? Mm-hmm. So what you handle after the election, it is 100% swayed by who's going to be in power come January. What do you think you can get done? And sometimes it's called the lame duck for a reason. It's almost like it's the the freebie. It's the free time to just like get stuff done because yeah. the slate gets wiped cleaned at the new year. And that's when the partisanship starts. So this is typically the most nonpartisan time and more things happen. Interesting. So, yeah. So there's, that's what's going on here. And Medicare, honestly, like they really, for some reason, don't like to deal with Medicare. So that's why I never make plans for November through the end of December of an election <laughs> year. <laughs> so that's what's going on right now. And we have a lot of issues that we could see some action at the end of the year. So I'm happy to list some of those out and then yes. we can go into detail about <laughs> some of them. And we can even talk about the process of how we got here for some of them. So also for another podcast, we've been working on ways to advance OT and mental health. The Senate particularly has been working on some legislation related to that. We did get a provision that 
in a discussion draft, but it's an important discussion draft. It's like an entire group of important senators to put together the discussion draft. We have a provision that would help clarify that occupational therapy services can be provided to someone with a mental health disorder under Medicare, which would be really great because people don't know that. That provision's in this discussion draft. The question is, does Congress handle mental health this year? Or do they put it off till next year because they think it's a bipartisan issue they can work on? Mm. Either way, we're in a good position. I would prefer just to see it signed into law, but that's one. Telehealth is another. We worked very hard to get included in an extension of telehealth services. Right now, there'll be an extension of all the waivers, which we can provide Medicare telehealth services under the waiver. There's an extension of 151 days after the public health emergency ends. And that passed Um, this summer, right? That was that piece of legislation. So there were two bills. There was one Mm. that passed the House that would extend it for two more years. And then there was one that passed, I think, in January or February. Was that long ago? It was a while ago. It did the (laughs) 151-day extension. Extension. Mm -hmm. And that's five Um, months for anyone who's trying to figure out. (laughs) Why it's 151 days, I don't know. But honestly, the first telehealth bills that made some of these waivers permanent didn't include us. Like some of our champions didn't include us. Um, That was the first one. But then the rest have included us. So ever since we got in that 151-day extension, we feel pretty good that we will be in any other extension. Um, So Congress, there are reasons why it is less expensive for them to extend us now. And so we do think that they will at least extend those waivers to the end of 2023. They might do it to the end of 2024. We've had telehealth legislation for years. I mean, Mm -hmm. ever since, even since before I was a student trying to get OT and other therapies to be allowed to bill for telehealth services under Medicare. And really one of the main examples we had, obviously, was the VA and that they've been doing telehealth for years successfully, but we never had a chance. And I think that's one of those things, too. You know, when we're talking about waivers, we're talking about the COVID-19 public health emergency waivers through Medicare. And even though, obviously, the public health emergency COVID has been disastrous and horrifying, it has also created a fantastic opportunity for legislation involving OT, because now we have all this data and examples that all these fears that people had around telehealth didn't necessarily come to fruition. Yeah, pre-COVID we were working with ASHA and APTA. We even had a physical therapist do a demonstration in a very skeptical office, right? Because <laughs> you sometimes you get a few key people, senators or um, congressmen, who really get authority. And if they're like skeptical and they're going to block you, then they're you're done. And so that's where storytelling comes into play. So like we pulled together all the data and research we had from the VA and from other places, but they actually watched a physical therapy session done by telehealth so that they could see that it can be done. And that happened before COVID, right? So we had, we had started to really build that Senate support. It was actually the house bill that left us out. It was one of our champions (laughs) left us out of the first house telehealth bill, but we forgive them. But since everybody's seen it happen since COVID, it's just sort of cleared that way. There's less skepticism, but the fact that we had already helped address our largest skeptics has made it easier. Yeah. And now that we too have that support, not only from providers, but also from 
the patients who have now received the services who are also constituents of that office and would like to continue to receive services via telehealth. Hopefully we have hopefully a slightly better chance than we've ever had before, which again, this is where that long game comes into play. You know, we didn't just start talking about telehealth since the bills were introduced. We've been talking about telehealth for a long time so that when we get to this point, we have a much better chance of getting something moving forward. And this is one where ideally you get a policy to a place where it's big decisions get made, right? So your your policy is in. And so either all of telehealth gets extended or it doesn't. And then it's not just us, it's the doctors, it's everybody else, right? What you don't want is all of telehealth to move forward and us to be left behind because that's another decade before you get back in. So it's better to be riding along with everybody else. And it's like, it's made or broken by things way outside of your control, which is the case for telehealth, right? Which is why that's not one of our big advocacy issues right now, because it's not just an OT Because it's issue. not just us, right? Like yeah, it's gonna, we can lean a little bit on some of the other people. Yeah, exactly. The it. ones that are just us, that we're the only ones advocating for it. Because telehealth, we have luckily gotten to that place where we'll move or not move with everybody else. Yeah. And that's a really nice place. And I think that's kind of, you know, you and I've talked about this before. You know, how do you pick, right? How do you pick what to focus on? How do we pick what to look at? And that's always a struggle because you wish you had a hundred people who could work on all the issues that impact us, impact our patients. But when we're looking at that biggest bang for our buck, right? We're the only ones advocating for OT, right? If we don't advocate for occupational therapy, who else is going to, you know, you're not, you're not going to see the chiropractor stepping up to the plate to say, well, you should really pass this one OT specific issue, right? Right. They might not get in our way, but they're not going to be the ones going to Congress every day. And so that's where we have to really figure out what we're focusing on. And like you said, that's where we're kind of picking because you've picked four priorities well, we right had a, we had a bonus one so i was going to say talk about opportunities <laughs> so there's been a bill called the lymphedema treatment act that would pay for compression supplies under Ooh. medicare right now they're not paid for so you can go through surgery to cure your cancer have your lymph nodes removed they'll pay for the therapy but they won't pay for the compression garments that are going to keep you from getting you know wounds or sepsis you know Yeah. Why would you do that? Why would you do that? Right. (laughs) There's been an advocate who I, you know, she has carried this issue and we've been supportive and have helped. And we've weighed in on a bill that would cover the compression garments and it passed the house. And it is also, you know, could be in an end of year package. So it's got that momentum and so we need as many voices supporting it as possible, which is why it got added as our bonus issue. <laughs> and that's another one that's been around for a long time. That bill has also been introduced a few times, hasn't it? It started the Congress before I got here. So it's over 10 Ooh. years. Yeah. yeah. And we'll see. But it's like if, if no one's going to consider it, it's tough when you have to choose between all the issues to choose that mm-hmm. one. And in this case... It was advocates specifically that that was their focus who really got the momentum. And we are very happy to be helping add to that momentum, I guess is the best way to describe it. And we know that practitioners have stories about 
their patients who have been negatively impacted by yes. not being able to obtain garments. Yep. I mean, just even the limited lymphedema treatment that I provided, trying to explain to a patient how we can't continue therapy because it's no longer skilled or medically necessary because it's under control, but I also can't, Medicare is not going to cover your right. garments. So I guess I'll see you back here in two months when it's gotten worse. It's an equity issue, right? Yeah. Like people who can afford to pay for it out of pocket can get it. And then the people who can't won't. And they're the and ones who are the now most at risk, right? And so, they'll come back and they'll keep paying their co-insurance because they don't have yeah. any other options. And so yeah. those are the kind of stories that you've got to share with Congress. Yeah, absolutely. So yeah, that was our bonus one. The Allied Health Workforce Diversity Act passed out of the committees in the House and it was included in a big province pandemics bill in the Senate. That is the version that has the best chance of being signed into law. And it just depends on whether Senator Burr, that's his bill, can get, he's just retired. He really wants this pandemics bill and an end of the year bill. We'll see if he mm-hmm. can. So, yeah. and not too many people are weighing in on, oh, you got to get pandemics in the final year legislation because there's so much else, but so also lending the voice to that, right? Like we would like to see this particularly for our diversity legislation, but it's also a good bill. Yeah. Cause the allied health workforce diversity bill or diversity act that's got $8 million in HRSA funding for yes. To help diversity in higher ed Mm -hmm. to recruit and retain students from diverse backgrounds. Diverse underrepresented, they're underrepresented in occupational therapy. Yes. And so that's another, again, another bill that's been introduced in a few Congresses. This is just the second one. Just the second one. Is it just the second? I thought Uh it was the third. Yeah. Yeah. So just the second one. But what else is in the Prevents Pandemic Act, obviously, besides the Allied Health Workforce? I personally have not been following that bill, but Abe can tell you all about it. Delegating is part of the job. Well, maybe I'll have to talk to him then, because, yeah, he's definitely put a lot of effort into getting that bill Mm -hmm. through, which it's not that common that the bill has so much support in the committees, which for anyone listening, if you are unfamiliar with the work of committees and how bills move through Congress, listen to the episode on how Medicare law is made. But yes, we the bills get assigned to a committee. The committee then has to pass it before it can go you know, up for that final vote. And so the fact that it's had this much support is good. And we had Dr. Victoria Garcia Wilburn speak on behalf of the bill, which was also fantastic to have her do that. And now, of course, she's in the Indiana State House. Is that right? She just won her election. So she just got sworn in yesterday. So another fantastic example (laughs) of an occupational therapy practitioner using their skills to advance policies Mm -hmm. and to advocate, you know, not only for OT, but also for her entire community. All right. So we've got Allied Health Workforce Diversity Act. And then what's next? And the OT and mental health plus the lymphedema. But then the other big two are Medicare policies. So one is the physician payments under the physician fee schedule, which I should pause and say, don't stop listening when you hear Medicare, because maybe you have a, you work in a pediatric private practice. And so you think it doesn't relate to you. It does because most private insurance uses Medicare payments, it's kind of their gauge for what they will Mm. also pay for services. So any cut under Medicare Part B, outpatient, that's really the CPT code billing 
many private insurance adopt those policies. So for both cuts to occupational therapy assistance, we are seeing that policy being adopted by private insurances, and then also cuts under the fee schedule, which we'll talk a little bit more. It's not just us affected by that. Um, Private insurance sometimes adopts that too. So those are the two big, two big ones. We saved the best for last. I saved the best (laughs) for last. I could talk a little bit about the fee schedule. Yes, let's. Yeah, there we you can go way back with these challenges, but I think the best way to like I know that Clarice has covered this in some of her other podcasts, but with the fee schedule, the best way to look at that is that every provider who gets paid through the fee schedule, they set a rate where my rate is relative to your rate. So my value is a two, Clarice is a five. And no matter how the fee schedule goes up or down, she and I are going to stay relative to each other, right? Like that she's at a five and I'm at a two. And a few years ago, the primary care physicians, their relative value was increased significantly Mm -hmm. for evaluation and management, looking at primary care and trying to promote the value of primary care. The problem is the pot of money to pay everybody stayed the same. So all of a sudden their value went up, but we have the same pot of money. And so it basically meant that specialties that can't bill evaluation and management codes took big cuts. Which is us. Which is us. (laughs) (laughs) Radiologist, pathologist, and therapy um, were the the big losers in that. Surgeons got cut, but not like we did. And, you know, this is a policy... It wasn't about us, right? Like yeah. nobody thought, oh, we need to decrease therapy payment. It's just the fact that it's the same pot of money all the time. Yeah. And that's like pot that of- piece of the pie model, yes. right? You only yes. have so much pie. You can't just give someone more pie without giving someone else less. It is exactly. And unfortunately, that. in this scenario, the physicians got bigger piece of the pie, which meant we did not get a bigger piece. <laughs> we did not get, we got a smaller piece. We got a smaller piece of the pie. That's exactly it. Now, what's also frustrating is since 2015, they redid the physician fee schedule. And instead of giving an inflationary increase, they put a whole lot more money into the fee schedule and then said, we're going to pay based on quality outcomes. Mm. Unfortunately, OT and PT and speech were locked out of a lot of that, either because we're providing services and facilities who couldn't participate, or we have such a low volume that we can't participate. And then the few who can, we have really not good measures. Like they don't really measure the outcomes of our services. So so there's no inflationary increase, right? That's what we're talking about MIPS, right? Yeah. So, but under this new fee schedule system, you can participate in MIPS and maybe get a small increase in your payments if you can participate. And that's what they put in place instead of giving us an increase in inflation. So since that time, since it was implemented, since it started in 2016, we haven't had any increase to that pie. Like the pie has not gotten bigger, even though, I don't know, the metaphor kind of ends there. There's more people <laughs> trying to eat it. There's that's more forks. Right. I don't know. <laughs> no, like, the cost of pie has gone, gone up. Well, you know, shrinkflation, how like everything you buy in the store now has less. It's kind of like that pie got smaller 
because of inflation. Yeah, because and now Congress your money just, doesn't go as far as it used far. to. Yeah. You know, maybe $10 for whatever last 10 years ago went a lot farther than the $10 in your clinic goes now. Yes, exactly. And so we've come to a place where the physician groups are like, hey, there's no inflationary increase. And other groups like ours, you know, where we've looked at cuts because of these adjustments, the budget neutrality adjustments for a couple of years. And Congress did act two years in a row to save us from 3% of the cuts. So we have had small cuts, but they've been putting off a 3% big cut from back when the primary care physicians got there. Yeah. And that's where one of those fires, right? That's where we never saw the fire that reached the clinic. So without action, we would have had a much larger fire. It would have been like 9% in one year. Yeah. Yeah. And Congress took two pieces of action that took away 6% of that. Yeah. Yeah, And that was the, let's see, they delayed the sequester. They delayed the pay-go. Was that also part of that? No. So the problem with, it's a whole different thing. There was another code. Another code that the primary care physicians would have given them even more money Ah. that they said, let's not implement that code for now. So that is waiting in the wings for next year. Oh, good. (laughs) They put it off. They put it off until 2023 and they may just kill it. They may not. It depends on how much power the primary care physicians have. And that's the Medicare physician fee schedule. It's the, uh, it's the ghost of Christmas past, present and future. It it keeps coming around. Yeah. So Congress kept, they basically added 3 billion to the fee schedule, which kept us from being cut by 3%, but it kept everyone from being cut by 3%. Mm -hmm. The primary care docs got a 3% increase. We just got cut by 3% less. And there are some people who resent that because everybody's coming in saying, oh, if you don't give us this money, we're going to get cut by 3%. And they're like, no, 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 that's not a cut. Like, that's where you should have been. Mm. So we'll see how that one goes. We've been on a lot of calls with leaders, with the people who have been significantly cut over the last three years, and now with the primary care physician groups, too, saying, like, look, inflation's out of hand. Like, you got to take care of this. Yeah, they'll yeah, do something. Cost of supplies are up because there's that letter, right, that was written by leadership or to leadership at least yep. in the Senate. And is there actually a bill text now for the fee schedule? So not in the Senate. Okay, there was just a letter, and they were saying we should at least add three percent back. On the House side, there is a bill HR eighty eight hundred eight eight zero zero that would add. into the fee schedule because that's the overall cut to that. It's the conversion factor. You know, the factor they use to figure out how much, how much they adjust things by is a 4.42% cut. So if that bill were to pass, we would receive a 0% reduction just on the Medicare physician fee schedule. If that bill passed, we'd get a 0.42% increase. Oh, (laughs) Because we're only, I put that in quotes, which you all can't see, we're <laughs> only cut by 4% this year on the fee schedule. Ah, okay. Because we had some upward adjustments. The problem is the adjustments overall were enough to give us a decrease. Yeah, because yeah. that's where that math starts getting challenging because, <laughs> right, you had the 3% from the year before yep. that now expires plus the additional adjustment. 
for and this that year. all comes up. Yeah. Yep. To that yep. 4% overall reduction. So it's not like Medicare all of a sudden woke up this year and said therapy gets a 4% reduction. It was yep. a compounding of factors. Yep. Are you ready to take your occupational therapy practice to the next level? Then look no further than the Amplify OT membership. You heard that right. Amplify OT has its very own membership program. This membership is designed to help occupational therapy practitioners just like you stay informed about the latest developments in Medicare and advocacy. You will have exclusive access to resources, webinars, the Mastering OT Policy and Medicare course, Q&A sessions, plus the ability to DM me your questions and get answers fast. But of course, that is not all. As a member, you'll be part of a community of like-minded occupational therapy practitioners who are share their expertise and offer support. So by joining the Amplify OT membership, you'll be able to stay up to date on the latest Medicare regulations and guidelines, learn how to advocate for your patients and your profession, connect with other OT practitioners and students to share your knowledge, And you'll have access to those exclusive resources and webinars so you can reach your full potential as an OT provider. So don't miss out on this opportunity to take your practice to the next level. Sign up for the Amplify OT membership today by going to the link in the show notes or amplifyot.com forward slash membership. Don't forget to stay informed and be the change that you want to see in our healthcare system. Today's episode is proudly sponsored by MedBridge, your go-to resource for advancing your occupational therapy career and, of course, getting those necessary CEUs. If you are passionate about staying at the forefront of our field and enhancing your skills, MedBridge is a comprehensive solution. With the MedBridge subscription, you gain access to an extensive library of high-quality live and recorded courses led by industry experts. So stay up to date with the latest advancements in occupational therapy, explore evidence-based practice, and enhance your clinical skills. One reason that I really like and recommend MedBridge is because they have both intervention-based courses and policy and reimbursement-based courses, and that is a rare find in a CEU company. But here's the best part for our OT amplifiers community. If you use the promo code AMPLIFYOT at checkout, you'll unlock an exclusive 40% discount on your MedBridge subscription. Yes, you heard that right, 40% off with the code AMPLIFYOT, that's A-M-P-L-I-F-Y-O-T. This is a fantastic opportunity to save some money, elevate your practice, and support AmplifyOT. So don't miss out on this chance to supercharge your professional development and head over to medbridge.com, use the promo code AmplifyOT, and enjoy the benefits of MedBridge while also supporting AmplifyOT and all the free resources that we produce here, like this podcast. So again, head to medbridge.com, use the code AmplifyOT at checkout, and we also have the link for you in the show notes. Okay, so we've got that, and then we've got some other good news. Of a completely different set of cuts. Well, now I will tell you the good news is, is that Congress... Congress has started saying we got to fix this again. They have not gotten the fee schedule right. They say they're going to address it next year. So we did recently submit a letter. And I will tell you, I was cranky for about a week after writing it because therapy (laughs) has not been treated well under the fee schedule for a while now. And so laying out that argument, I'm angry for everybody, but we're working on it. So maybe Congress will address that (laughs) next year. But in the meantime, we'd like them to, we'd like to not be cut this year. Yeah. It's a bipartisan issue, which is it good, is. especially since we'll have Republican control 
a slim Republican control in the House and a slim Democratic majority in the Senate. Yep. The request for we sent the letter in was from eight members of Congress who are all positions. It was eight members of Congress. They might not all be positions, but four were Republicans, four were Democrats. So it's very bipartisan. Yeah. Excellent. Okay. So we've got that and some hopeful, potentially hopeful news. I will tell you that most of the physician groups, they are much more aggressive than we are. And I'm taking my lessons from there. To them, 3% is not enough and they will be furious. So I I think we should not be <laughs> nice OTs and we should we be should like, like, a little yeah, bit Congress, of outrage. Like, yeah. come on. Like, <laughs> so you're 10, 9, 10% inflation and you're giving us nothing. Like you're like, oh, zero should, you should be happy with zero. And we may not even get like we may not even get zero. So I would like to see at least 4.42%. We will probably see three. And okay. so that's better than the full, but I won't be happy. I won't be happy about it. It won't be a Merry Christmas. <laughs> so I don't know. Right. Like I can claim victory for us, but like I can also be angry, right? Like we yeah. we've worked to get that. If the coalition didn't work, if we didn't have all the grassroots, we wouldn't even get the 3%. So yeah. it's important to recognize that. Exactly. And then on top of that, we have the PAYGO, which I know the PAYGO gets a little bit complicated. So I'll ask for a little bit of wonky. And then PAYGO is not going to happen. Okay, good. So I can tell you all, at least 10 years ago, let's go with that. At least 10 years ago, Congress put in... Uh, mechanism where if they overspend, that automatic budget cuts happen. So if it's projected that government spending will increase by a certain amount in the next year due to congressional policies, then automatic cuts are triggered. Those automatic cuts are for the amount that the spending would be over. It's supposed to be equal between domestic and defense, mm. but Medicare is capped at 4%. Oh, interesting. Okay. Yeah. So Medicare is capped at 4%, but if it was a big number, then defense could be cut by 6% across the board and all of the other programs, education, health and human services programs would also all be cut by 6% just across the board. Yeah. But Congress can say, oh, PAYGO is not going to apply. That's all they have to do. They just have yeah. to pass 60 senators and a majority of the House have to say PAYGO is not going to apply to that spending. So the first COVID bill, they waived PAYGO because it would have mm-hmm. triggered it. The second COVID bill, they waived PAYGO. But the third COVID bill, which was passed with only Democratic votes, and then I think also with some of the infrastructure spending, those two combined triggered PAYGO. Okay. So, so now they just need to say that it's not that it apply. doesn't apply. And it's a little political because you do have Republicans saying it wasn't our spending that triggered this and it wasn't. Right. right? But nobody wants it to go into effect. And this is one of those cases where they are going to just clear the decks to start fresh next year. Yeah. So everybody says thing. we don't have to worry about PAYGO, but don't quote me on that. <laughs> December 31st, they haven't waived it. Yeah. Because like worst case scenario would be approximately that four and a half percent cut to Medicare part B. Yes. And a 4% cut 
to Medicare Part A because the PAYGO affects both Part A as well as Part B Medicare spending. So it would be a 4% cut to A plus an additional 4% to B. So then you would be looking at 8.42%. It's not going to happen. Yes. Well, that's good. So that's the worst case scenario, (laughs) which is why then we're glad to have people like you keeping an eye out and also advocating so that we don't have that cut. Because I think that's hard. You know, it, it sounds like, again, something that doesn't happen to me, right? Like, oh, it's not me that's receiving the 8% or the 4%, whatever the number is of a reduction, you know, that's somebody else, right? That's Medicare paying my facility, especially if I work facility. Now, obviously, if I'm private practice, I'm going to feel that a little bit more if I own yeah. my own company. But when you're a clinician, right, you don't see the budgets, you don't see how much Medicare usually actually pays for your services. But at the same time, if you're a clinician, and many clinicians are advocating for more pay, for better pay, for more benefits, whatever it may be, it becomes a hard argument to make when you're asking for more, when your facility is receiving less. Absolutely. Yeah, and that absolutely. really hard because then again, if you don't understand how your services are paid for, what the implications are, if you're even billing correctly, so whether or not your claims are even being accepted, it becomes really hard to justify why you should be paid more and why your salary should reflect inflation when how much someone is getting paid for your services isn't also reflecting that inflation. Exactly. You can't do more with less. Well, and the facilities would tell you that over the years, they've trimmed the fat, right? Like the federal government has figured out where all the extra padding is in the facilities. So they used to be able to take, right? Like they could kind of flow with some of these changes, but now they've really gotten down to the actual cost, maybe sometimes less than the actual cost. Like they've really sort of gotten it down to much tighter, more or less. Right. Yes. That's not to say that healthcare Medicare still isn't profitable. Right. Like, like, yeah, there are some that are. So I think it just depends too on your facility. Like some are still making profits and not providing the services they should. And then there are many who are like just really squeezed. And so this would, yeah. like, they don't have any room. Because... And I think that's part of that story, right? Not yes. only is it impacting me as a clinician in terms of what I may take home to my family, or if I own my own business, what I might be able to provide. But also most of these facilities have some sort of case mix in terms of the types of clients that they'll accept. So like they might want 60% Blue Cross Blue Shield because they pay the most, 30% Medicare, and then like 5% Medicaid and 5% pro bono, right? But if all of a sudden Medicare reduces how much they spend, they may have to adjust how many Medicare patients they're willing to take, which then negatively impacts patient access to care, especially in these rural communities, which and medically underserved communities, which I feel like leads us very nicely <laughs> into our last, to topic, our last topic <laughs> um, of like, you know, we're talking about that trimming the fat, right? Yep. Where facilities used to make money off of certain things as well as access issues. I think that leads us well Mm -hmm. into the OTA payment differential, right? OTAs have historically been paid less than OTs, Mm -hmm. generally speaking. In some places, OTAs can actually make the same or more than an OT, depending on where you work, but it's not super common. But if you pay the OTA less, but Medicare is still reimbursing 100%, that facility is profiting off of that payment differential, right? Because- If you have an OT and OTA provide the same service, Medicare pays the same amount, but the OTA gets paid less by the facility. There's that little extra bit of fat in there. Yep. Well, 
2018, CMS decides to remove that through Congress, correct? Or Congress, Congress did it. That. Congress right. did it. CMS just did as they were told. Just they made the they sandwich that mm-hmm. Congress told them to do. And so that leads us into this next bill. So tell sure. us more. To spoil the surprise, tell yeah. us about the SMART yeah. Act. <laughs> so, yeah, so in 2018, Congress was like, hey, nurse practitioners and physicians assistants are paid at 15% of physicians, so we should do the same thing for assistants. I would like to make the point that PAs and nurse practitioners can bill under their own provider number, assistants, OTAs, and PTAs cannot. So there's always a supervision component, no matter what. So the 15% is not an accurate comparison Mm -hmm. because there's always two people involved. That's just a side note. Yeah. So this policy went into place in 2018. It was one that Congress had been looking at for a while, and we had been convincing them that they didn't have enough data and not to use it because it saves money. And so they're always looking for ways to save money, to pay for other policies. So you don't trigger PAYGO, right? Back to PAYGO. You know, they try to make policies budget neutral. And this was a policy they implemented. In 2020, we started applying a modifier to those services. So it's the first time that we've actually had data on how many, on what services under Part B were being provided by assistance. And then in this past year, that's the first time that this 15% payment differential went into place. So to your point, Clarice, I've also looked a lot at the Bureau of Labor and Statistics data. The difference between what, what an OTA or PTA gets paid compared to an OT or PT, it varies by state. And then it varies by location within those states. And so I have seen both in rural and urban areas, you see that pay for OTAs go up because it's a supply and demand issue, right? right. Like if you need a supply, you're going to pay people more. And those happen to be the areas that our data shows need the services of occupational therapy assistance to make sure patients have access. So just, it, it is interesting looking at the payments that it, it varies greatly across the country, but that you see sometimes close right up to that eight, that 15%, right? That there are places where OTAs get paid like right at 15% less than than an OT. Understanding that this was going to be an issue, um, we introduced a bill called the SMART Act. It had three pieces. It got introduced last fall. The first was to delay implementation of of this payment cut. That's already happened. It went into effect and we're not going to be able to delay it. COVID was our big argument for that. The second is to change supervision requirements. So in private practice, there are still direct supervision requirements. That is more restrictive than any state other than Kentucky. It's the only place that has a direct supervision requirement for OTAs. New York is for PTAs. And honestly, it's not recognizing the expertise of occupational therapy assistants who can provide those services without direct supervision if that's where they are in their career, right? Like you might be fresh out of school and you may need direct supervision and that's between you and the supervising therapist, not Medicare. Like under state law, that's between you and the supervising therapist. Because that Um, direct supervision piece requires that someone be on site. Yes. And that's what makes it so burdensome, right? So then you have to be physically present versus usually it's, it's general. Right. You know, like if we didn't have, let's say, general supervision under Medicare Part A home health, like we wouldn't have OTAs at all. 
right. in home health because you're not going to send two clinicians out to do one clinician's job. Exactly. And if you think about a rural private practice clinic where maybe you want to be open from seven in the morning to seven o'clock at night and staff that with a PT and a PTA. Sorry, I, I work this issue with the physical therapist a lot. Um, so that's why all of a sudden you're hearing PT and there's your private practice is very active yes. on the issue or, you know, an OT and an OTA. This way you could stagger that time. You could be open for 12 hours so that you have the most flexibility for people to see you before or after work. Unless you're willing to work a 12 hour day, you can't do that if you both have to be on site. And you can't take vacation. Like, if, right? It's just the exactly. OT and the OTA. You have to shut the, the whole OT clinic says, down. I'm not feeling well today. Well, the OTA has got to go home. That's right. And That's this right. is only, you know, for anyone, it's, it's only in private practice. So only in pr- Medicare Part B private practice. But there's still a lot of private practice clinicians. Right. Well, or look, it could be a multi, multi-practice. You could have OT and PT and speech there. But it's still, if you just got an OT and an OTA there, the same thing happens, right? Right. So both of them have to go home. And as we tell a lot of offices, this is the least acute setting. Right. Right. So general is okay in way higher acuity settings. In acute care. (laughs) Right. (laughs) In literally the most acute setting. But it's not in the least acute setting. So, So that's one policy. And then the last policy is to exempt this differential for rural and medically underserved areas. And I've been really passionate about this one because I really do think that this payment differential is going to impact access to care in those areas. And so we did gather some data on this. I've been trying to use the data to tell the story and it has convinced some people, which is good, right? Like people were like, okay. and the best way to, to think of this is for both PT and OT, the percentage of services provided by an OTA is 50% greater in rural and medically underserved areas. So in all cases across all settings, more services are provided by assistance in rural and medically underserved areas. So medically underserved is just where you have trouble accessing healthcare, mm-hmm. right? The healthcare deserts. So that can be both urban or rural. There's an overlap mm-hmm. between the two. So rural and medically underserved can be the same thing. But when we looked at the data, you really see this higher proportion of services provided by assistance in those areas that are rural and medically underserved. You also see that In rural and underserved areas, 58% of skilled nursing facility services are provided by assistance. It's 51% in non-rural and underserved. So skilled nursing facilities 100% rely on assistant care. I think that number is staggering. 58% in rural and medically underserved. Yeah. And shows just how important having OTAs is. They're not just an additional piece, right? And OTAs are absolutely (laughs) They're holding it down. (laughs) Yes. Yeah, they're holding it down. Without OTAs and skilled nursing facilities, patients aren't receiving care. No, it's 100%. And especially in the more vulnerable, vulnerable areas. And for OT, if you look at 
all of our med be because so much more OT is provided in skilled nursing facilities compared to PT and private practice. 46% of all Part B therapy services are provided by assistants for those rural and medically underserved areas. Wow. 46%. It's 34% for non-rural and medically underserved. So I think we just don't see, I don't think we understand what a big part and how important assistance services are in in ensuring access to, to therapy and patient outcomes. And that's been that diversity piece, right? That you've kind of, again, yes. kind of painting this whole picture, telling yeah. the story, right? You talk about like the Allied Health Workforce Diversity Act, but, you know, we know that there's more diversity in OTA, for, yes. like with OTAs than there is with OTs, often because we have more individuals coming from these communities that tend yes. to be more rural and medically underserved because community colleges tend to be more accessible in those areas than attending yes. a master's or doctoral program. And so we see not only the importance in like that they're present there, but then also again, reinforces the importance of having diversity within our profession, because we know that when people tend to come from those communities, they tend to return back to those communities. It's true. Yeah. There's good data with that. And the issue is not only is a higher proportion of these services provided by assistance. If you look at other data that we got, people in rural communities, but all right. So we looked at staffing data for SNPs mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and did it by per resident minute. So how much therapy staffing do you have? How many minutes of therapy staffing do you have per resident day? And as you get more rural, you see a decrease in the number of staffing minutes. Yeah. Right. So there are more therapy practitioners in less rural and there are fewer therapy practitioners and providing fewer therapy minutes in more rural. And then the same thing happens. If you look at socioeconomically disadvantaged communities, you see that same decrease in staffing minutes. And the only staffing minute that stays consistent is occupational therapy assistance. Hmm. So in the lowest socioeconomically disadvantaged community, it's 5.7 OT assistant minutes per resident day. And in disadvantaged communities, the most disadvantaged, it's 5.3. So it hardly moves, but you see a dramatic decrease in the number of OT minutes between those communities. It's like 6.1 down to 4.4. Yeah. So it just shows how much more these medically underserved and these socioeconomic disadvantaged communities rely on OTAs. Yep. Which then shows how much. So if you're relying more on OTAs, that means that more of your income is coming from the minutes that the OTA is billing. And you're already providing fewer therapy services or you right. already have fewer therapy minutes in those areas because this is A and B for the second one, right? You right. already have fewer therapy minutes. What happens when that gets cut, right? So that's why we've been trying to exempt rural and medically underserved areas because I firmly believe we're going to have an access to therapy issue in those communities. So, And I think that's where, again, some of the pros and cons of a piece of legislation that wasn't fantastic, right? We didn't want a, pay- a modifier as well as a payment differential 
but having a modifier as well has allowed us to track some of this data because right there is before there was no there wasn't really a way to tell if the OTA or OT provided the treatment to a certain extent right without doing some really hard mining of information but now that we have the modifier it's much easier to pull out that data and allows us to really take a look at some of these numbers that we otherwise wouldn't have had the opportunity for and then now of course it's hard to know the real data of the payment differential impact just because it was implemented January 1st of 2022 so we don't even yet have a full year of information even think you know where I'm going with this, but oh, I will well, tell you, end of you won't get in your way. <laughs> yeah, you are. So um, <laughs> end of year, we have looked to see would these policies save or cost the federal government money? Mm-hmm. And our analysis is that changing the supervision would save money. Right. Which means that Congress has perked up. They're like, we'll take that. We'll take that money. Thank you. And we think there's a really good chance that supervision changes are going to be an end of year legislation. Which would be huge. Yes. We want them to use that to pay for this exemption for rural and medically underserved areas, at least for two or three years. Right. So offering them a, it costs nothing policy. Yeah. Right. Like the, Supervision would pay for two or three years of the exemption. And they've said, oh, if it's just zero, we don't care enough to work to get it in this big package at the end. So they want that money. They want want the money. I was like, when did a zero cost bill? Like, when did that get a no? Um, no (laughs) Now, the House has not said no to us. So the Senate is like, this is the deal, which is why the Senate reintroduced their own bill this week that is supervision only. So the Senate just wants supervision. S5. Very strange. We got the five, but we got the five. That doesn't make any sense. Usually bills are introduced in order, but they're allowed to like hold certain numbers. And so I guess now they're like backfilling with the old numbers. I don't know. But honestly, I wondered if it was a typo when I think I saw that earlier this week. (laughs) S5 was the mistake. (laughs) We all looked at it a few times. And it doesn't have a title. It's got a big, long title, a bill to, you know, change the supervision requirements under Medicare. It doesn't have a short title. It doesn't have a lovely acronym, like SMART. But in the House, we think the data helped convince people. So we do still have champions in the House who could get this into the end of year. We're not sure. Should they say it's not going to happen, our next ask is to get a study. Mm. Now that we have, what I don't want to have happen is them to take our pay for, take our money, and then just say we're finished with this issue. Like, don't come back to us. And then just have access deteriorate in rural areas and nobody pay attention. And is that what the study would look at? That's what the study would look at. It would give two years. So it would be due in the middle of 2024. It would give two years of data to look at what happened to part B services in these areas over those two years. And look, if they come back and they say nothing happened to those services, then Then we just have to keep moving on. But if they show that access declined, then, then we live to fight another day. So that's, um, that's what I call my back pocket. Like that's my back (laughs) pocket option Everyone advocating on this, the PTs, the private PTs, the facilities, we all have this language. 
And so, you know, if someone, if someone's like, nope, it's not going to happen. We're like, then you need, you have to give us the study. Right. And there's another piece of that OT, right? Always having plan A, B, and C. (laughs) You never go into a room with just plan A and hope for the best. You go into plan, you go into the room with plan A. And then if everything, if it hits the wall, you've got plan C. (laughs) It's true. I mean, that's what I enjoy the most, right? And I get so passionate about what we're dealing with. And I'm very passionately believe that we're going to have an access issue and that people are just going to stop getting therapy services and nobody's going to notice. Right. And I believe that. So it's like, okay, if you're not going to listen to us and look at our data, then we need a government agency to, to do the data analysis. Because who would execute that study? Is that CMS who executes the study? In this case, we're asking the Government Accountability Office to do it or Ah. GAO. CMS could do that study, but CMS doesn't study itself very well. So we'd rather an outside group. There's a little bit of bias in there. There's a little bias. So we'd rather an outside group do it. And the outside groups will consult with us, right? Like we'd be able to share our data with them. Interesting. On that kind of analysis. So. Yeah. And I think that's in another important piece when we're talking about telling that story and advocating is that patient access is really a big part. Cause like Congress, I mean, they kind of care about whether or not we take home money, right? If you're talking about jobs, you're talking about impact on families, but at the same time, like if you talk to Medicare, Medicare does not really care whether or not you have a sustainable business model, or if you're bringing up bring home as much money as you want to bring home. What they care about is patient safety and patient access. And so if we can make that argument about the patient, which I think OT practitioners do really well, because right, we're excellent advocates for patients, not always the best advocates for ourselves. But in this case, this is where, again, we can tie directly access to therapy, like reimbursement to therapy can impact access to patients. Because fundamentally, if you can't pay people, I didn't go into this profession to work for free, right? <laughs> so well, people I, can't get paid. I realize I should say, because I'm saying access, access, access. I am worried about the jobs and the pay yeah. of those assistants in those areas. Mm-hmm. who are going to stop working in those areas. Therefore, there won't be access. I am worried about them too. So, yeah. just, you know, like that is also a huge concern of mine. But the story that you tell to Congress is really about the access, but the implied piece is that people aren't working in the job they love anymore. Yeah. And again, you know, when you're talking about using these skills, right? Like I think occupational therapy practitioners have all the skills they need to be an effective advocates, right? Because we do this every day when we talk with patients, right? Like when I go into a talk with a patient about why I think they should get up out of bed or why they should participate with therapy, I'm not telling them all the clinical stuff of the background of how it's good for them, right? I relate it to what's important to them Mm -hmm. and why they should get up, whether it's to see their grandkids or maybe they're really motivated to return to work or whatever it is. And it's the same thing here. And we're talking to Congress. We know what also is impacting and what we're worried about, right? With that patient, I may be worried about their wounds. I'm worried about their long-term function, their long-term ability to remain in their home, but that's not necessarily always going to be the selling argument for them. And so when we're thinking about advocacy, it's about understanding all the dynamics at play, which OT practitioners do really well, understanding that full task analysis, holistic view, and then communicating it into that story of, okay, what is important to the person in front of me? 
and what is going to compel them to make a decision that is in my favor, right? Because that's what advocacy is at the end of the day, is convincing someone to be on the same page as you. Right? Like that same setup is also really important for every practitioner in a facility trying to make a point for themselves, right? And I look, I've done the mental health advocacy, like that's been my baby for 10 years. And sometimes you can just be like, look, OT is supposed to be there, right? Like we can do this. We should be there. And that is never an argument that that wins, right? <laughs> you have to follow that process that you just said, which is like, why should they care? Yeah. Right. What motivates them and presenting that argument? And look, OT is easy to do that because I think that we can like save the world. So it's easy to <laughs> Easy to, to unbiased professionals unbiased. Yes. that feel that OT could save the world. But it does make my job easier, right? Yeah. Because I do believe that and I can give the examples and the stories. So, but yeah, but you have to, not just because we should, but you have to tell them why we're going to address the issue that they want addressed. So with that said, tell us what someone today can do one of my favorite web websites to visit. What can so, someone do today to make a difference? So I think the best thing that you can do is go to our legislative action center, which is www.aota.org backslash take action. And we always have our latest actions up there. You can look through and you can make a choice of what you think is most important. I always do recommend that you personalize your letters. It keeps you from going into a form letter stack and, you know, tells that story a little bit more than our form letter. does. So yeah, that's, and sometimes there are phone calls. I think on the physician fee schedule, we have a phone call, you know, test those calling skills. Um, <laughs> if you don't like talking on the phone, just call after hours and leave a voicemail. It's so good. Good advice, Clarice. <laughs> Good advice. That's what I've done before. They're not going to be there at 8 p.m. usually to pick up it's the phone. True. So it's true. And even if they're hours. there, they, they turn the phone off. So. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, that's the number one way. I also recommend on the AOTA website, if you, it's aota.org, you can just do backslash advocacy. So it's backslash take action or backslash advocacy. And that'll get you to the advocacy section of the website. We have an issue section that really breaks down the 10 top issues that all of policy is working on with more information. So those are the two places I recommend. Yeah. And I really like, I mean, I love the take action page, not only because it's easy to use, right? Like I've done it on my phone. I've done it on my computer. It takes like five minutes because you just enter in your address and then mm-hmm. the letter is right there. Super easy to edit, but also because it contains good information, right? Because you already did the policy analysis, which I think is nice because as busy clinicians, I don't have 40 minutes to read or I didn't have, I guess maybe now I do, but I I didn't used to have 40 minutes to read a policy, figure out what the heck it meant and try and communicate in a way that made sense to the politician and make sure that it's got the bill number in there and the data because you and your team have already done that. Yep. It's already been put together. So all I need to do is put in why I care and why I think the person that I may or may not have voted for, but the person who is representing me in Congress should also care about that. And the good news is any discipline can use it. Any individual can use the take action page, right? It's not just accessible to members. 
Oh yeah, we purposely always left that open. It does usually start out as an occupational therapy. Say it's very OT biased. Yes, but but you can can um, use it. But you can change that first sentence if you are not, in fact, an occupational therapy assistant or therapist. So yeah, just change the first sentence. Yeah. And so I think it's perfect. I know that uh, soda groups have had advocacy parties before where after a class, they get together and have everyone send in a letter on a bill of their choice. I know professors have done it as assignments before to have them go. And I'll make sure to link those two pages that you mentioned in the show notes so people have easy access to them. Yeah, I definitely recommend everyone take action because, right, like you go into the office, but it's a lot more, it's a lot stronger of an argument if I can say, well, these 50 constituents of yours agree with my position. Oh, yeah, I could go in. I have a whole different, like, when do the numbers count? How do they count? Right. And at the end of the year, we just need numbers. Right. For at the start of a Congress, when you just want someone to co-sponsor a bill like then. 15 letters and a visit from us can convince them, mm-hmm. right? But now we're not just convincing them to the individual to co-sponsor the bill. We want them to be so tired of hearing from everyone that they're like, they say to leadership, you got to put this in the bill, right? These people to stop calling me. <laughs> so yeah, you know, so now numbers, like we just need numbers and it's one by one by one by one that you get those numbers. So yes, it's okay to go down the list and send in all of them right now because we really just need those numbers. Yeah. So now's the time. So we have Mental Health Parity Act. We have telehealth, the lymphedema bill, Allied Health Workforce Diversity Act, Medicare Physician Fee Schedule, and the OTA Payment Differential slash Supervision or the SMART Act. So we've sure. got Yes. Six-ish policies. I know you have an article on nine policies. So whatever number. Some of those are broken into pieces. Like OTA (laughs) has two policies. You made them Physician fee schedule has two policies. (laughs) Yeah. Well, because it's like, we want both, but we'll take one, right? Yes, exactly. So we'll link, I'll link all those resources in the show notes. And once again, it shows the importance of getting involved, getting involved early. Because like we've talked about, a lot of these bills have been around. We wish it was as easy as a phone call and something happened within the next few days, but often this is the long game. Even the OTA payment differential, right? The bill passed in 2018. We didn't see it hit in the pocketbooks until 2022. And if we just waited to pay attention in 2022 when it hit the pocketbooks, we could have had a much worse piece of uh, policy than if we hadn't started paying attention in 2018. And so I will make my pitch to tell everyone to be an AOTA member, personally an AOTA member and big supporter of the work AOTA does so that I don't have to do these things every day, right? Because I can't write Congress. I can't read the bills. I can't comment to CMS and read the thousand page proposed rules by myself, right? Because the Medicare physician fee schedule final rule was what, like 13, 1400 pages? (laughs) It was 33. Was, was it 33? Was, I thought it was 3,000. But okay. anyway, it's, Might have thousands. Been that long. it's thousands of pages. Yeah. And I don't have time to read that. So yeah, I know no, a full-time clinician doesn't have time to read yeah. that. But you know who does is someone at AOTA who reads that policy. And so for my 200 some odd dollars a year, I get a pretty big bang for my buck to make sure that I can continue to be an occupational therapist because I like that job security. That's why I became an OT. Because I knew I knew I was going to be around to stay, but only if people take action. 
Well, thank you. We appreciate all of our members and their support of our work. Like we're passionate about it, but we can't do it without members. Absolutely. It takes a village. It does. Well, you're my boss. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, I'm going to remember that one. (laughs) Well, thank you, Heather, for talking on my podcast. And we'll definitely have to schedule some future episodes because I know that people really want to hear about mental health. I've heard that one requested. And then obviously... Everyone keep an eye out whether or not Heather joins me, but we'll definitely do an analysis of what happened come January of where we're at, whether or not bills passed. Obviously, they can find you at AOTA.org, be a member. There's also on the Take Action page, that's where you can also sign up specifically for the Federal Affairs email. Is that correct? If you subscribe to get emails from us, we will push out like when we really, like we always need action, always right. That's fine. But sometimes we do campaigns. And so we'll let you know the campaigns and we will also be sending out a summary of what happened at the end of the year. I mean, you'll, you can find that on the website, but if you want it to land in your inbox, um, if you subscribe, we'll also be sending that out. Perfect. Well, thank you for all of your work. And also for being a friend and mentor to me. Thank you. Because I wouldn't be here without you. So thank you again. And everyone go take action. If you made it this far, I want to just take a moment to say thank you so much for listening to the Amplify OT podcast. And I hope you're feeling a little more inspired and prepared to amplify your value and the value of occupational therapy. If you found yourself at any point thinking, gosh, I guess policy isn't that dull and boring, then you're definitely going to love how we talk about policy and advocacy in the Amplify OT membership. There's a link in the show notes where you can sign up today so you can take an immediate next step towards emerging as a confident clinician. And of course, don't forget to follow the Amplify OT podcast so that way you never miss an episode. And you know, while you're there, why don't you go ahead and leave us a five-star review because that's the best way to help others find the podcast too. And of course, thank you so much to Jessica Riccio for editing this podcast and for all of you for giving me a reason to record it. You're now officially part of the OT Amplifier community and you are now prepared to go out there and advocate for OT because remember, if we don't advocate for occupational therapy, then who will?